0: So, is Christianity a big, fat lie? I'm an idiot to believe it. That is the question we address today. Is Christianity a crutch? A crutch for the weak-minded and the generally weak. I mean, in other words, sure, it'd be nice. It would be lovely to believe in a God who sees us and who loves us, who forgives us of everything that we do. It would be nice to believe there's always a silver lining to every cloud, but that doesn't make it so. And so is Christian, they just a bunch of wishful thinking because really, come on, science, philosophy, history have all disproven. It's a quaint little notion that some people dreamed up because they wanted to feel better about their lives. It's just a crutch. That's the question. Now, what we're going to do is explore that from a number of angles today. And one of them, I want to so a philosopher named andrew mcgee who sort of articulates in a, in a classic way this this view of christianity as a crutch and, and what we want and and he's an he's an atheist you know unabashed and he, this is what he says i've i've innumerable times heard people say that it would be intolerable if the existence of the universe were a meaningless accident and life were without any larger purpose or significance and therefore there must be some meaning to it all I have, at least as often I've heard people advocate belief in God on the ground that such belief is comforting. Again, if I say to them, but it might just be the case that there's no significance to it all. After all, we know lots of things certainly are the case that we don't like that are nonetheless true. Someone is bound, almost bound to say, usually angrily, do you want life to be pointless then? And so what McGee would say, I'm just being realistic. I, I, I explore reality, and exploring reality, I find no basis for this, and simply because I want it to be so. And he says, people often argue with him. They say, so life has no meaning, so do you want life to be meaningless? And he would say, well, no, it doesn't matter what I want and what I don't. Life is filled with things I don't like. And every one of us looks at things in our life that we wish were not so. Maybe we wish we were not who we were. We wish our parents were not who they were. We wish our friends were not who they were. We wish wish all sorts of things were different, but wishing they're different doesn't make them not so. Deal with reality is essentially what he'd say. Just because you want life to have meaning, great. It doesn't mean that it does. In the... uh, Little clip there with Colbert, and his name is Bart Immons. Bart Immons is the professor; uh, he's the head of the religion department at uh, Chapel Hill. And uh, he, he uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about it, his, his story in a minute. But his uh, take essentially is that I have I've explored Christianity from the inside and, and discovered there that there's just no reason to believe it. He would say, I, I watched another interview with him where. He's the head of religion at Chapel Hill. And he would say, do you believe in God? And he'd say, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I believe in God. And he would, he would say, it doesn't matter what I want. It doesn't matter what I'd like. But I've explored truth ruthlessly without passion or bias. And in so doing, what I found was I may want Christianity to be true. I may wish there was some answer to what I feel inside me, but... Just because I want it, doesn't mean there is. This whole issue, we're going to get to sort of the intellectual part of it in in a little bit, but this whole issue sort of skips over one fundamental point, and that's this. When you ask the question, is Christianity the crutch, the initial question you have to ask is, so is there a need within humanity that awaits to be addressed? In other words, is there a need for a crutch? Uh, At this point In our home we could open up a crutch store And we could open up a boot store and I don't mean cowboy boots I mean, you know the orthopedic boots because my children keep breaking things Evan now has a fluorescent orange cast on his foot We have a discount plan with ortho carolina. We just keep going in and we get crutches And we get boots And I I, I promise you, I have never once looked at my children that I'm willing to admit and said, oh, you're such a baby. You really got to have, you know, man up, you know, so your foot's broken, you know, just walk on it. Need a crutch. Well, they actually, you know, (laughs) have needed crutches and casts and boots and things like that. And the reason they need them is because something's wrong. See, what often gets lost in this question is Christianity a crutch, and somebody says, it, Christianity is just a crutch. The question that often gets lost is, are we in need of crutches? Is there some reason why a crutch might, in fact, as Christie said, might be a good idea? You see, the idea of need, you know, they, they uh, 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 McGee the philosopher sort of paints this as, you know, these Christians, they just want to leave some meaning. This isn't some relatively new endeavor, this relatively new thought of, is there some need within the soul of humanity? It's not something like the 1970s contemporary suburban Christians thought up. It's millennium old. And people at the highest level of of, uh, intellectualism have explored this fundamental issue of, is there a human need? Is there a need in the soul that's quite different quite different than is experienced anywhere else within, you know, the animal kingdom. Is there something more? Is there, is there something we're yearning for and, and we want that's deep? You see, in, in Ehrman's book, uh, Misquoting Jesus, early on, it's, he's telling his story. So here's the story. He grew up sort of in, in Christian circles, and he was in a major ministry called Youth for Christ. And it's a very, very good ministry, and he talks about the, the leader of that who was a bright and winsome leader named Bruce, a different bright and winsome Bruce than me. And he presented this picture, and this is how he goes through, he tells the detail, he presented this picture, and he said, all of you have a need within your soul. And Ehrman, almost as an aside, as a castaway, says, as if there's a teenager without a need within their soul, and then moves on. And he moves on, so he dispenses the idea that there's a need, and like, well, he was just praying on the fact that teenagers have a need within their soul, missing the question, why? If if we made it up why did we make it up what's the need that we were trying to meet now maybe maybe christianity is flawed but is the need flawed is there actually something there and as i said for millennium people at the highest level of academia have wondered this aristotle a long time ago 2400 years ago pre-christian wondered this question he, he he pitted two sides of ethics on the one side there was there was this, this, this view that there was a way of living that was the good life that which would make the soul alive a way of living that was beautiful and that that was true and that promoted freedom and yet he tried to give answers to why this was the way we felt we ought to live this was a good life but we lived like this and his philosophy tried to bridge that gap between who we Saw we ought to be, which is an odd concept you understand if there's no need of the soul. who we ought to be and who we actually were. Now, he had no answer to the, what he would say is this ought, he doesn't know where it came from. It's the real flaw in, in, in my opinion, Aristotelian ethics. He didn't know where it came from. He said, it's not, it's not convention. In other words, we didn't make it up because it's true everywhere we look in every human soul, but he couldn't say where it came from. Plato, on the other hand, would say he wouldn't know where it came from, although it's a kind of interesting concept. Plato would say, we we all sense that there's something good and true and right. We know that there's such a thing as beauty. And so when we see something beautiful in the world, the reason why we think it's beautiful is because it mimics the reality of the universe that there is beauty. The reason why we long for freedom, and when we see it, we rejoice, because freedom is fundamental to something about humanity. The reason why we're passionate about truth is because we know there's something in the universe that says truth is right. It's why when Jesus says the truth will set you free, that people resonated with that because it hit some core deep within. And what Plato would say is, where does this come from? Where does this notion come from? And he called it the furniture of the universe. He would say, I, I can't tell you, but it's, it's as if it's, it's out there. There's beauty. There's such a thing. You know that. It was, and, and Plato was very intuitive. As our, you know that beauty. You understand what I'm saying. Freedom, justice, mercy. These are things that we treasure and that are simply true to humanity. And then he wrestled with, if this is true to humanity, why is it that we, through no compulsion, somehow feel this gap between this sense of what's right and true and beautiful and who we actually are? Why the gap? And how do we bridge this need? This need of our soul, which feels like our lives ought to be more. Our lives were meant for something different and don't, in fact, meet that. C.S. Lewis, in a book that I would, could not encourage you more strongly to read, which means I encourage you strongly to read it. I think I may have used too many negatives. I could not not have never encouraged you not to read this, which means you should read this. At least the first chapter. And in the opening chapter, again, Lewis is very intuitive. He's he's just sort of laying out. It's almost like when Lewis writes here, he goes like, huh, I wonder why this. And this is what he wonders why. He goes, why is it that if I walk up to you and say, hey, can I have a piece of that pizza? And you say, no. I said, hey, wait, last time you had pizza, I let you have some. If I say, wait, wait, you, you took my seat. I was sitting there. You're compelled to give me some sort of answer, which makes your behavior okay. There's a reason why, even though you shared pizza with me last time, I don't have to this time. There's, a, there's, a, there's an exception to the rule that you shouldn't steal somebody else's seat. And it applies in this case when I've stolen your seat. And he says that seldom you hear somebody say, hey, can I piece your pizza? And us go to hell with your standard. There's no such thing. There's no reciprocity seemingly, without, without, any, without any, any compulsion from outside, we, we argue on the basis of things should be lived a certain way, and, and then somehow deep within us, we struggle with the fact that others and we ourselves don't live that way. And then he summarizes that opening chapter. He calls it right and wrong is the clue to the meaning of the universe. This is what he says at the very end of it. These, then, are the two points I wanted to make. First, that human beings all over the earth, have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and cannot really get rid of it. And, and one of the things he says is when people say, oh, you know, we don't all have this same idea of right and wrong. Cultures are so different in right and wrong. What he'd say is, really? Are they really that different? They might have nuances of different, but imagine a society where running away from battle is considered a good thing where cheating somebody else out of what they deserve is a good thing. We don't have that sort of thing. In every society, we have this curious notion that we ought to act a certain way and can't get rid of it. Secondly, that they do not, in fact, behave in that way. They know the law of nature. They break it. These two facts are the foundation of all clear thinking about ourselves and the universe that we live in. I couldn't agree more. Mere Christianity. Any other questions? <laughs> I thought you were actually going to give me a, a live question like, Bruce, what about... Anyway. So, not in a you know, suburban church in Wheaton, Illinois, did a bunch of people sit down and go, hey, there's a need within our souls. Let's talk to teenagers about it. For thousands of years, there has been this ongoing debate within intellectual circles. Why is it that we feel that there's a way to live and we don't live it? Where where did this notion come from? And is there any answer to that fundamental dilemma? In other words, do we actually need a crutch? Is something broken? Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, and I could read out of any of the four Gospels. They all work fine for me. In Matthew chapter 11... And by the way, if you have stuff that, that Barterman talks about, then he's a very bright man. Don't get me wrong. However, I'm, I'm more than happy to discuss anything that he said. We did a lot of it a couple of weeks ago, Jamie and I, but I'm more than happy to discuss anything that he says. There is a, a, a distinct bias to what he says. It's put a certain way, and, and uh, I'd be happy to talk with you more about it. Anyway, in Matthew 11, there's a passage where some people, some followers of John the Baptist who John the Baptist was, came before Jesus and he talked about Jesus coming and he's now in, in prison and it says this, after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who's to come or should we expect someone else? John seems to unearth that question of the soul. Is this, is this the answer we've been looking for? Or, or should we expect someone else? Or not, not, so is there no answer? Are you the one who's going to finally come and bridge that gap, that, that posse in our soul between who we are and who we feel like we ought to be, who helps us to make sense of the longings of our soul, of the wise? Are you the one? Or should we look for someone else because the question won't go away? Jesus you may not be the answer but the question's not going away. And Jesus responds like this. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. <laughs> I'm sorry it makes me think of that line. Raises the dead like a duck. The dead are raised and the good news is preached to the poor and then he gives us little thing at the end blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me you know he says john look at what's happening here yes i'm the one i'm the one who's coming in to meet the needs of people the needs of people physically and spiritually i'm the one who is the answer to the question i know you have a question i'm the one who's the answer to the question he doesn't say, well, you know, John, I'm just, I'm just doing some stuff. Like, really, you know, there's not really any answer to the questions of your soul. Yes, John, I'm the one. This is the position that Christianity offers out, is that there is a question. There is an actual need. That humanity struggles in a, in, in a way that nothing else in the, the, uh, the world struggles with the question of why, of what do things mean, and what they're about. And Jesus says in the midst of that, I have an answer for you. You were made for glory. You were made for beauty. You were made in the image of a very real God. That's why it's not furniture in the universe, it's a being in the universe. That's why you sense that things are true and beautiful. That's why you resonate when you hear the truth, so set you free because freedom rings in your soul. You were made for glory and for beauty, and yet there has been a significant breach. And so you see it, and you long for it, and you live over here quite honestly and wonder why your life can't be different and wonder why the ought and the actual just never seem to meet or meet far too little. And in the midst of that actual dilemma of the soul comes Jesus, the Christ, the chosen one, who walks onto earth, and he delivers this message to the heart of people who are wondering and says there actually is an answer. You were made for God. Your heart and soul was made for God, and you've gotten short-circuited from God. That's why you know it, but you can't live it. And I will bring you forgiveness and a reconciliation back with the God who made you because that need was meant to be addressed. C.S. Lewis also will use this illustration. When we, The reason why we're thirsty is because there's such a thing as water. The reason why we're hungry is because there's such a thing as food. The reason why we long for meaning is because there's such a thing as meaning. The reason why we look for beauty is because there's such a thing as beauty. The reason why we feel broken is because we're actually broken. So pick up the crutches. Is Christianity a crutch? Yes, it is. You need a crutch. Honestly, our ankles are not broken, we don't have a small bone in our foot that's fractured. Our soul is disconnected, deeply crippled, and in need of forgiveness. Yes, it's a crutch because there's an actual need. And the truth is, I know deep within me that I don't actually have to convince you of that because I know you feel it. The only thing I want to do at this moment, the only thing I want to do is not to help you to buy into that notion that I'm silly to feel this. You are in good company human beings for thousands of years have wondered this question and it's the core of clear thinking you have a need jesus has come to address it he's calling people back to himself now if there's a need the question can be asked is christianity the answer to that need well let's say you go okay there's a need there's something wrong is Christianity the answer to that need? Or is it just too intellectually lightweight? Does it not carry enough weight to it to be believed? If anybody really explores this stuff, does it get tossed out by, by science? Well, we've got a couple of things working against this. One is caricatures. This is, you know, last week, I think it was Thursday, on Yahoo News, front page of Yahoo News. Um, there was an article about a church in Ohio, not a church, a um, uh, Christian school in Ohio that was suspending a student and not letting him take final exams because, wait for it, he was going to a dance. And they made a strong case. They didn't apologize. They made a strong case for why this was the exact thing to do. And in fact, it was this kid's fault. He should have known better. Because, after all, rock music and dancing are evil and immoral. And so, a guy like Andrew McGee goes, see... (laughs) Really? This is the stuff? This is the stuff of clear thinking people? Oh yeah, and then there's the person who said, contrary to all evidence, that the earth is about 5,000 years old. Really? This is the stuff of clear thinking? These are caricatures. In any movement, you can find the fringes. It's not usually wise to, to go with the fringes as the heart of what it is. You don't have to toss your mind out to believe in the gospel. In fact, let me just, in one way, I could explain this to you personally. I could explain this to you, my, this to you in a number of different ways, the intellectual credibility of Christianity, the argument from morals, all sorts of things. I just want to talk to you about one thing, one thing. When you, Francis Schaeffer, a Christian philosopher, has said, when it gets down to ultimate issues, fortunately, there are very few options. And I want you to think about this. Think about the fact that you and I are here. And you and I are here as we are here. We are are beings who think and who feel and who love and who hate, who hurt, who heal, who rejoice, who weep, and who wonder why. Who wonder, why am I here? This is an unprecedented phenomenon. I say without any fear of contradiction that tigers don't sit in the woods wondering why they are here. And it is a distinct problem for any other view other than a theistic Christian view of why there are these people who move from simple things like, you know, they have opposable thumbs and we make tools to sitting back and wondering why. And who believe that they ought to live a certain way and can't do it. See, that's the bizarre, and can't do it. You've got three options for this phenomenon that we know as human life. One, one, is everything came from absolutely nothing. See, it either came from something or nothing. It really does get simple at the base level. Nothing. It came from absolutely nothing. You, I, kangaroos came from nothing. Now, I want you to try to imagine nothing. You know what the problem with that is? You can't do it because you're imagining something as nothing. What is nothing? You know, one person said, well, it's like having a blackboard and you had words on you, erased the words, and then you threw the blackboard away. It's nothing. There's nothing. This is one intellectual theory, that everything we have came from absolutely nothing. Now, you can believe that. I will not say you are wrong to believe that. I will say this. Please don't tell me I lack intellectual credibility if you would say that everything we know came from absolutely nothing. That's a trick. That really is a trick. So maybe we move on. And everything we know of, including you and I, came from something. you got two options for something. Something is stuff, an impersonal thing, or it's a personal thing. And so in the beginning there was stuff, or in the beginning there was God. Well, if, if, if in the beginning there was stuff, and from all eternity there was something, not, not, not thinking, not feeling, not breathing, not hoping, Not creating, not loving, not hating, just stuff. Really, this is problematic, in my view, from an intellectual position. This is problematic. It is a quantum leap from the idea that I had a fin that turned into a leg to I'm sitting, thinking, and wondering about what is real, what is true, what is right, what is holy, and what is beautiful. This is a quantum leap without anything in the mix to make sense of it. There's no whys in the idea of an impersonal source to our universe. Or there's a personal source. Now, you see, people say, how can you, how can you prove that there's a God behind the universe? You got three options. There's a personal being, there's an impersonal stuff, or there's nothing. That's it. These are your options. A personal God explains a lot. How did God get there? I don't know. I don't know how impersonal stuff got there either. It's not an answerable question. Try it. Try going back that far and figuring what came first, and it just makes your head hurt. But something's there. If you go all the way back, and Tim Keller says this in in his book, Reason for God, which I also encourage you to read. What's the name of that book? Reason for God, Tim Keller. It's on the back table. Just so I'd get you first. (laughs) He says at some point you have to stop seeing through something and see the end. You know, what's what's the beginning of this, this thing? In the beginning, you got stuff or you got God. And God makes so much sense because now I have an answer not simply to existence, but to metaphysical existence, to wondering, to personality, to the ought. You see, there's no ought if there's no God. There's no ought. We're just making it up. Why in the world somebody would make up an ought that we can't live is crazy. Christians made up a God to make themselves feel better about life. Then they made up an interesting God because they made up a God who is holy and perfect when we know we're not. Gee, you should have made your God a little differently. Really, if you're making it up just to make you feel better, he's just a grandfather in the sky. There's really no right. There's no wrong. Don't worry about it. This is not, my friends, in case you haven't read through the this is not the Bible. In the Bible, there's a real God of holiness and truth in whose presence we quail because it shines on who we are and in a sense, our heads go down and we wonder, how can I be so far off? But there's also rescue. There's also rescue. The idea of a personal God explains why we feel like we ought. Christianity explains why we fall so far short of that ought. And it proposes an actual solution in space and time written in historical books about a God who came to redeem you, to make your life whole, to answer the question that has been resonating for millennia. Who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose? How can I be who I was since I ought to be? That answer is found in Christ, who loves you deeply and calls every soul back to himself. So I conclude, is Christianity a crutch? Yes, absolutely. The reason it's a crutch is because we have a broken foot. If you are someone who is not yet a follower of Jesus, I hope, if nothing else, that today you've been able to move aside this question of, is Christianity a crutch, and perhaps ask a better question about who you are, what's going on in your soul. And if, in fact, Jesus isn't the answer to that question. If you are a follower of Jesus, I hope that what you feel today is a couple of things. One is that, no, I don't have to assume that Christianity is wishful thinking. I can actually pursue questions to the limit without fear. But also, I hope that you'll feel a deep sense of gratitude because in the end, after all this sort of academic talk, in the end, it comes down to a very personal savior who saw your need and died for you and who promises what your heart has always wanted. And so today, as we move out of this talk, we're going to move into communion because at the end of his life, having taught and healed and raised from the dead, he looked at his disciples and he spoke to them and he said, see this bread, this is my body and it's broken for you. Take it need it. My life will be broken so that you can become whole again. And then he took a cup of wine and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood, this new agreement. The haunting in your soul, the longing for something more. Here's the deal. Here's my new agreement. The problem was you were made for me and you've gotten separated. Believe in me and you'll come back and your heart will be made alive. That is what we remember as we come to communion today. If the communion service would come forward, please. If you are someone who is a person who has chosen to be a follower of Jesus, whether you're a part of Warehouse or not, I I invite you to join us at the communion table today. And uh, how you do that is we will move into five stations, three in the back, two in the front after I serve the communion service, they'll move back there, and then you make your way back to there as you're ready. They will gather you into a group of about 12, serve you. You will um, pray together, take communion together, and then you can make your way back to your seat. If you're somebody who came in today not sure that you were a follower of Jesus, but something that question really is haunting, and you're able to say now, this is what I want. I know what I've Felt before is actually true that I was made for God and I want that and I want the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ to come back to Him. If you come to that place today, then I encourage you to come forward and join us in communion and then talk to us about it afterwards so we can help you to begin to process what's happened. If you're somebody who's still exploring the questions and you're just not sure where you are with that, I'd encourage you not to come forward only only for this reason it's meant to be a, a, a meaningful. Uh, a ritual, a meaningful ritual that speaks to our our souls. And it's never a good idea to take meaningful rituals and turn them into bland rituals. It tends to have a deadening effect on your soul. And I I would not have that for you. So I'm going to serve the communion service. I'll give you a couple of moments to to pray, to, to reflect upon where you are, and then they'll move back into their stations.